0: Let us turn now to the portion read in the book of the Revelation. Revelation chapter 17 we may read just now from verse 13. Revelation 17 verse 13. These have one mind and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. These shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. And he saith unto me, The waters which thou sawest where the horse sitteth are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And the ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast, these shall hate the whore, and shall make her desolate and naked, and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God hath put it in their hearts to fulfill his will, and to agree, and give their kingdom unto the beast, until the words of God shall be fulfilled. And the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth, and so on. And uh, we would endeavor to keep in mind particularly those words in that verse 18. And the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. Remember that in this chapter, the angel, one of the seven angels with the seven vials, has come to John to explain to him the significance and the meaning of both the woman and the beast upon whom she sits. And the interesting thing is that when we come to verse uh, 7, the angel said unto me, Wherefore didst thou marvel? I will tell thee the mystery of the woman. And then, we don't have that Mystery revealed until we get to verse 18. I will tell thee the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carrieth her. And we wait until we come to verse 18. And what do we have? The briefest of descriptions. And uh, the woman which thou sawest is that great city. It isn't a great city, but it is a very particular and peculiar great city, the one and only great city, the unique great city, as it were, which reigneth over the kings of the earth. In the first part of the chapter, we're given a detailed description of the woman. But here it is all summed up in this, the woman which thou sawest is that great city, which reigneth over the kings of the earth. So what we have to appreciate, as we've, I hope, been doing all along, is remember we're dealing with symbols. The symbols have realities behind them, but we have to recognize that we are dealing with symbols. And we have to inquire then and look for explanations regarding the woman who is also a city or the city that is depicted as this harlot or prostitute woman. Now, from chapter 17 to the end of chapter 19, we have the overthrow, the destruction of the woman and the beast. This city is brought down, chapter 18. We read that uh, there in verse 2, An angel cried mightily with a strong voice, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and is become the habitation of devils and the hold of every foul spirit and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. Later, you hear the laments in this chapter 18, verse 16, for example, Alas, alas, that great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls. For in one hour so great riches is come to not, and so on. And then in verse 20, we read, Rejoice over her, thou heaven, and ye holy apostles and prophets, for God hath avenged you on her. So, while the ungodly lament the fall of this great city, heaven and the saints are to rejoice. Rejoice at the fall of the same. So there are two very different attitudes to the fall of this great city. But in chapter 17, it's as though God is actually preparing us for the fall, telling us what leads up to the fall of this great city. So we may endeavor to Note some of the developments that will eventually lead to the destruction of this woman or this great city that is depicted as this harlot woman. Now it is interesting that there are three cities in the Old Testament that are actually identified as harlots or prostitutes. You have uh, Tyrus uh, in uh, Isaiah. You have Nineveh in the little prophecy of Nahum. And then you have Jerusalem in Isaiah, in Ezekiel, in Jeremiah. Those are three cities that are actually depicted and referred to as harlots. So when we come to this great city, this mysterious city here in chapter 17, we have to understand we're dealing with symbolism. And we must understand what that symbolism is teaching us. Now going back to the early Part of the chapter to verse 1, chapter 17. There came one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters. Then we're told in verse 15, the waters which thou sawest where the horse sitteth are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. So when this woman is judged, we have to understand the influence, the impact of it upon peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. But what John is here seeing is, or what he's led to see, is the judgment. God's judgment on this great city here depicted as the uh, feminine representation of the ultimate evils in society. Now, notice uh, how she's described and uh, what then the beast and this woman engage in doing. We have a description of the beast, a peculiar description, the beast upon which this woman sits. And we're told the beast, verse see that thou sawest was and is not, and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit. So you have something of where he comes from to where he comes to. And he comes into human society, but he comes uh, from the bottomless pit, out of the uh, hellish darkness of the bottomless pit. And he shall go into perdition. That will be his final end in perdition. But before he goes into perdition, he does immense evil in human society. They that dwell on the earth shall wonder whose names were not written in the book of life From the foundation of the world. This is one of the world's great wonders. We've heard of the seven great wonders of the world. Well, here is the wonder, as it were, of all wonders amongst ungodly men. This causes them to marvel and wonder. They're impressed by what they see and what is taking place Here is the mind, we are told, in verse 9, which hath wisdom, this beast has seven heads. And this is what he says about the seven heads. They are seven mountains, but they are seven kings. Now, many will refer to Rome, the city of Rome, as identified as the city because Rome was built upon seven hills, so we're told. That, of course, is a fact that's disputed by uh, even uh, those who are historians because there's disputes as to whether there really is seven or just six. But many in the ancient past, many cities were built, as it were, in seven hills. We have to understand we're still dealing with symbolism. The seven kings are symbols. The seven mountains are symbols. The seven heads are symbols. And uh, so on. Now this beast, that comes out of the bottomless pit. We've mentioned it before, but we refresh our minds the angel tells John something about him. He was. That means he has a past. He was and uh, he, uh, we're told, uh, he which uh, was and is not and yet he is. He was, he is and yet he was not, he is not. And uh some find difficulty figuring out what is the angel actually trying to tell John. Well, you can see the references to the kings, some are fallen, some are present, and some are yet to come and the beast was and is not, and yet it is, and the real point that the angel is making is this. In the midst of all the changes, something remains. Something remains. Kings rise, kings fall, and yet there is something that doesn't actually change. And the beast, he was, He is not, because now he's not what he was, but he does exist, but he's different. And you see what the angel is telling John is this, and you you have it there in verse 13. These have one mind. These have one mind. Right throughout history, kings rise, kings fall. They might have a different culture. They might have a different approach to government or whatever. But there's something that remains. They are of the same mind. They are of one mind. And that mind is the mind of rebellion against God and defiance of God. The beast, in verse 11, that was and is not, even he is the eighth. Now, these heads are, uh, that were uh, the ten horns, seven heads, ten horns, we're told they're ten kings. But the horns are merely symbols of kingly authority and kingly power. And yet, though they are diverse and they are different, they are independent, they are individuals, if you go to one king or you go to one head, whatever the differences that exist between them, they think the same. They all think the same. They're of one mind. Of what is their one mind? They have one mind. Now, that statement is a very strong statement. But if we really think about it, it is a warning statement. It is a very solemn statement. These Have one mind. Now you go into the epistles of Paul. What is he constantly saying to the churches? Be of one mind. Constantly. The apostle is warning against divisions. Constantly he is exhorting the saints to be of one mind. Why? So that they are strong in the truth and in their ability to withstand the mighty powers of darkness because they are of one mind. How sad it is. How very sad when you see the fragmentation of the institution that calls itself the body of Christ or the church of Christ. And yet here are the forces of darkness. And the influences that are upon these godless kings... And these ungodly rulers, they are of one mind to give their power and to give their strength unto the beast. They're all of one mind. We serve the beast. We devote ourselves to the program of the beast, to the schemes of the beast. We're of one mind. To serve his evil purposes. What a shame it is. These of one mind. And you go to the church. These of a multitude of minds. Don't you see what the church is up against here? Don't you see what John is so mystified by? And what the angel is explaining to him? Now, then we read verse 14. These that are of one mind to serve the beast. The mind doesn't change. Kings do. They still think the same. Generations come. Generations go. Cities rise. Cities fall. But there is the same spirit existing generation by generation. So much so... These shall make war with the Lamb. These shall make war with the Lamb. Now, doesn't this tell you something about their minds and their thinking? Because the Lamb does not symbolize war. The dragon does. But the Lamb doesn't. And here they are of a mind, whatever the Lamb is to them or is not to them. The Lamb symbolizes peace. The Lamb symbolizes innocency. The Lamb is not a symbol of war at all, the very opposite. And yet here they're of a mind Let us make war with the Lamb. And the Lamb shall overcome them. In their folly, they do not know what they're doing. And the Lamb shall overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. Now look at what we read in verse 17. These are of one mind we've read. One mind to make war with the Lamb. It doesn't seem they like peace. They don't like the Prince of Peace. It's not in their spirit to be at peace. They enjoy war, They enjoy strife. They enjoy fighting the Lamb. But God hath put it in their hearts to fulfill his will and to agree. Isn't that something? God hath put it in their hearts to fulfill his will Now that's the last thing they intend to do. They're not intending to fulfill the will of God at all. They're against God. The spirit of anti-God, anti-Christ, anti-church, anti-Christian, anti-truth. That's the spirit that rules in them. And yet, God hath put it in their hearts to fulfill his will. They don't know it. They don't intend it. But they're actually going to served the the, the purpose of God. They're going to be instrumental in bringing about not what they think they're doing, but what God has purposed to do. And they give their kingdom unto the beast. (laughs) They're not giving their kingdom to God. They're not trying to serve him. They give their kingdom to the beast. And they're all agreed, That's what we're going to do? And yet, while they're doing all this, they're actually contributing to the fulfillment of the mighty, sovereign purpose of God to bring down Babylon, to overthrow this harlot woman and the beast upon which she rides, the woman which thou sawest, is the great city. They didn't intend to destroy her. They intended to build her up. But God has put it in their hearts to do what they will, enabling them to carry out their plans, their purposes, without actually being aware we're going to bring about the very fulfillment of God's sovereign will. And what is the will of God? He sent his son, the seed of the woman, to destroy the works of the devil. Not to make a dent, as it were, but actually to destroy them. Now, what is he going to destroy? This great City. Now, in verse 18, the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. Now when John was in conversation with the angel, he knew there was no dispute about it. It wasn't anything to argue over. It was a fact that it was the city of Rome, the great city of Rome which uh, reigneth over the kings of the earth. There was no disputing about it. But what is the symbolism in this city? Let's go back to verse 3 of chapter 17. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast full of names of blasphemy. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls and so on. Now, we might well ask, why is so much detail given regarding her attire? It is to demonstrate the success of this harlot woman. The success of apostatizing from God. I believe that the woman, the harlot woman, is the contradiction, as we've said in the past, of the beautiful bride of Christ that is uh, demonstrated or uh, is described for us in chapter 21. She is the very opposite. She represents departing from God, unfaithfulness to God, one who has abandoned herself to a life of immorality and debauchery. Now, we are told that uh, she has a particular name. And the name is displayed in a particular way so that there's no dispute whatever she is representing harlotry and forsaking of God. Now, this is spiritual prostitution. Just the same as it was in the Old Testament. We mentioned the three cities that are referred to in the Old Testament as uh, harlots. Here, it isn't just a harlot city. But upon her forehead was a name written. Mystery Babylon. This name is in order to identify her, to let everyone know who she is. All the kings of the earth that commit fornication with her, they know exactly what they're doing. When they enter into a relationship with this woman or this city, they know what they're doing. When they come and they unite themselves with the Spirit of this woman, the beast, and the city, they know what they're doing. They're not mistaken. They're not taking it taken in because she identifies herself shamelessly. Mystery Babylon the Great. There never has been a Babylon like this. And yet when we come to verse 18, the woman which thou sawest is that great city. Well, it cannot possibly be literal Babylon because literal historical Babylon was destroyed centuries before and never was rebuilt. So it cannot be the literal Babylon. Now we may then think, well, it must be Rome there. But it is mystery Babylon. So while we might think it is very probably Rome. We have to understand there still is a mystery about it. A mystery about this city and it is a spiritual mystery. Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots. Now as I said, there Three cities in the Old Testament referred to as harlots. And they are, as we mentioned, eh, those cities that God describes that way. But here is a city that has gone further than any of them. Worse than any of them. More depraved. More immoral more wicked, more opposed to God than any other city ever. Now, you must understand, you go back to ancient Babylon. Well, they weren't worshippers of God at all, the people of ancient Babylon. They didn't worship God. But here is a people A spirit of opposition exists within them, opposition to everything that is of God. Now, we might just go back to Ezekiel chapter 16 for a moment. Ezekiel's prophecy, chapter 16. And you will see the connection between this and what we read in the chapter 17 to 19 of Revelation. Notice how the chapter begins. Ezekiel 16, again, the word of the Lord came unto me saying, Son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her abominations. Cause Jerusalem to know her abominations. Now you know right away. We're talking about a city now all right. And say. Thus saith the Lord unto Jerusalem. So this. Is addressed. To the city and the inhabitants. Of ancient Jerusalem. Jerusalem before the time of Christ. Jerusalem As of old. Now, what does God have to say? Verse 6, for the sake of time. When I passed by thee, and saw thee polluted in thine own blood, I said unto thee, when thou wast in thy blood, live. Yea, I said unto thee, when thou wast in thy blood, live. Now, Rightly, very often these words are taken and used in a gospel manner to show the mercy of God on a sinner cast out and condemned under the law. And rightly so. But in its historical context, God is speaking of his mercy and his grace toward An unworthy people in the beginning. He says, verse uh, 4, As for thy nativity, in the day thou wast born, thine evil was not cut, neither was thou washed in water to supple thee. Thou wast not salted at all, nor swaddled at all. Neglected, outcast, hopeless. But when I passed by thee, I pitied thee. And I felt compassion, and I took thee, and I washed thee, and so on. Verse 8. Now when I passed by thee, and looked upon thee, behold, thy time was the time of love. And I spread my skirt over thee, and uh, covered thy nakedness. Yea, I swear unto thee, and entered into covenant with thee, saith the Lord, and thou becameest mine. Now, there you see a bond and a union. God formed it. He entered into covenant, and this is what he said, you belong to me. You're mine. What do we read then happens? Uh, Verse at nine, I washed thee with water. Yea, I truly washed away thy blood from thee, and I anointed thee with oil. I clothed thee also with broidered work, and shod thee with badger skin, and I girded thee about with fine linen, and I covered thee with silk. I decked thee also with ornaments and put bracelets upon thy hands, and a chain on thy neck. I put a jewel in thy forehead, and earrings in thine ears, and a beautiful crown upon thine head. I did all this. Thou wast decked with gold and silver, and thy raiment was of fine linen and silk, and so on. And thou wast exceeding beautiful, and thou didst prosper in thy kingdom. Now, what is God saying? You are indebted to me. I give you everything you have. I decked you as a princess. I made you mine. I beautified you. I adorned you. I give you everything that you have, you'd nothing without me. You were cast out to die, you were forsaken, abandoned, but I took you up, and I made you everything you are. So much so that in verse 14 we read, Thy renown went forth among the heathen for thy beauty. But it was all the beauty that I gave you. For it was perfect through thy comeliness, which I put upon thee, saith the Lord God. Now, there you have a scene of a city. City of Jerusalem, representing God's covenant people. God didn't enter into covenant with the city, but the people in the city. God didn't say to the city merely, this is my city where I dwell, but you people are my people whom I blessed. I blessed you with the gospel, with the ordinances, the oracles, the priesthood, the ceremonies. I blessed you with all these things. And you were outstanding among the nations. The heathen recognized you were blessed by God. But look at what we read, the turn of events now, in verse 15. But thou didst trust in thine own beauty, and playest the harlot, because of thy renown, and pourest out thy fornications on every one that passed by, his it was. But I said, thou art mine. And now you are saying, I belong to everyone. I am free. I am a liberated woman. I can love whom I want. I can desert God and still prosper. What a change. What a spirit of un thankfulness, and ingrat- gratitude. Everything I gave you, you become proud of it. You've become proud of your beauty. And what have you done with it? You've abandoned me. You've forsaken me. And you've turned to devote yourself to all these uh, lovers. Verse 16. Of thy garments, thou didst take, and deckest Thy high places with divers colors and place the harlot thereupon. The like things shall not come, neither shall thou. Thou hast also taken thy fair jewels. And God says, you took everything I gave you and you abused my compassion and my grace and my mercy. And you go down through the chapter and you hear God saying, for example, in verse thirty five, wherefore O harlot, what city is God addressing? It is Jerusalem. Wherefore, O harlot, here. The word of the Lord, thus saith the Lord God, because of thy filthiness, and so on. Now, John was not ignorant, as I've emphasized all along. He was not ignorant of the words of the prophets. When he comes here to be informed, By the angel, this woman, this harlot woman, actually represents a city. John would understand that perfectly. His mind would go back to Isaiah or Nahum. It would go back to Ezekiel. It would go back to Jeremiah. And he would understand perfectly. What the symbolism is before him. This woman represents apostasy from God. Opposition to God because of apostasizing from God. Unfaithfulness to God and to his covenant promises, rejecting them. Now we might say, well then, this great city, is this Jerusalem? We do not believe so. I personally believe the city is actually Rome, but mysterious Rome. Remember, there is a mind, there is a spirit going through all the kings, through the beasts, The dragon, the beast coming out of the water, the beast coming out of the earth, what are they all agreed to do? To serve the beast, to worship the image that he has made. So, what do we have? When we think of Babylon, mystery Babylon, it is because Babylon has continued And Jerusalem has become like Babylon. Babylon existed, but is not. It is historically not. But the spirit of Babylon lives in Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem. (coughs) But Jerusalem falls. Jesus himself predicted the fall of Jerusalem. And even today, the most orthodox of Jews, as I've said before, they recognize. 70 AD was a judgment on the children of Abraham. They don't recognize the... Uh, anger of God against them, crucifying his son, but they do believe God has punished us for our sins. And until we repent and go back to the Torah and go back to the law, we are not going to prosper. But Rome becomes the new Jerusalem. So Babylon doesn't exist anymore historically. But Babylon lives on in Jerusalem and Rome becomes the new Jerusalem. Now, why do I say that? Because in the Acts of the Apostles and the New Testament, when there was any controversy and a dispute in the church, over circumcision, over whether the Gentiles should be circumcised or not. What did they do? What did the apostles and the elders do? They went up to Jerusalem because it was the place where, you might say, the church began. It was the mother church. It was the center of the church's life and activity But, when the papacy came into existence, Jerusalem's forgotten. Jerusalem is ignored. The church of Jerusalem, the mother church, disintegrates, as it were, and now Rome becomes the new Jerusalem. It becomes the center for everything to do with the church's life. The power is centred in Rome, ecclesiastical power, uh, the theological authority, everything is here settled in Rome. So, in a sense, you have the continuation and even today you analyse a lot of the teaching of Rome and you will find that over and over again you can trace many of their customs, many of their practices, right back to ancient Babylon. But, interesting here, there is a war to begin. As I said, this is preparation for the fall of Babylon, the fall of Rome that is incorporated the spirit of apostasy from God, the spirit of idolatry and waywardness and immorality, and so on. You will see how later in chapter 19, what this woman and this beast are warring against. They are warring against the land. So let's go over, if you have a war and you've got the generals directing the war machine and the opposite sides, well, if you're going to try and predict who might win the war in the end, well, you analyse the history The qualities, the qualifications, the strategies of those who are leading the warfare. Now here you have the woman riding the beast. And she is leading a war against the Lamb. Go over to chapter 19 and see then how the opposition is described. Chapter 19 we read verse 11, John says, I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. There's a great red dragon ridden by this harlot woman. Now we see a white horse. And who is this white horse ridden by? He that sat upon him was called faithful and true and in righteousness He doth judge and make war. It's as though he's saying, well, if you're all of one mind to take on the Lamb, I'm prepared for the fight. You want to take on the Lamb and his people who are following him, the church, the true church of Christ, well and good, I am prepared. Verse 12, his eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He doesn't need seven heads or ten horns. On his head were many crowns, and a name written that no man knew but himself. Now go back to chapter 17. What do we read about the woman and the beast? We read in uh, verse three, I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet colored beast full of names of blasphemy. Beast is full of names of blasphemy. Now that is some statement, isn't it? Full of names. I suspect that most of us are satisfied with having two or three names. But here is this beast, this organization, this institution, this spiritual identity, and it is a beast full of names. What a mass of identities. You and I are identified by our names. And if we've got more than one name, perhaps it identifies us with a father or a grandfather or an uncle or whatever. Here is a beast and he doesn't run out of identities. He can change like a chameleon Time and time and time again. This is a most peculiar beast. He is a most dangerous beast. Because when you think you've identified him by one name, he's got a thousand more. He is a peculiar but dangerous beast. Now, if he goes to war with all these names, it's going to be a mighty task to identify him. If you're going if a general is going out to war he needs to know how to identify his en- his enemy. How is this enemy going to be identified? He is extremely dangerous. But this beast is ridden By this warring, idolatrous woman. Now she's got lots of friends. She can rally the kings of the earth. And they will follow her to war against the lamb. But look at his names. In chapter 19. The beast is full of names of blasphemy. And the woman has a peculiar name written in her forehead, which we shall look at in a moment. But, in chapter 19, verse 13, the one who's riding the white horse as she rides the beast, he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. What a difference! Those who are following the Lamb, whithersoever he goeth, they can identify their leader and their commander. He hasn't got the list, the lengthy list. He is not full of names. He has a name which is above every name, and his name is called the word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed upon him white, uh, uh, upon white horses clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Now you see the scene. In readiness for the conflict, this woman riding upon this scarlet-colored beast full of names of blasphemy. On the other hand, you have him whose name is the word of God who is called faithful and true and he is riding upon a white horse. Now, what do we read as we go down through chapter 19? Out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword that with it he should smite the nations. Notice that carefully. Where does the church's victory lie? Where does the church of Jesus Christ's strength lie? The sword is not in his hand. The sword goeth out of his mouth. It's the spoken, revealed Word of God that will triumph and it will be with that sword that he will smite the nations. Here is the harlot woman riding the beast coming up against this force and out of his mouth goeth a sharp uh, sword that with it he should smite the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Now you see the scene that is set. But then we read something more. Verse 16 here at chapter 19. The one whose name is the word of God. You will see here that we come to verse 16 And the particular name, while there are other names, the particular name is all in capitals, emphasized. Go back to chapter 17, and the name of the woman is likewise, all in capitals to emphasize her particular peculiar name. Now, notice where their names are. In the woman, verse 5 of chapter 17, upon her forehead was a name written. Go over to chapter 19, verse 16. He hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings. You see, the woman's name is on her forehead. The glorious word of God riding in the white horse, his name is not in his forehead, but his name is on his thigh. Now we might just pass that over and think, well, what does it really matter? It does matter. You go over to the prophecy of Jeremiah and the chapter 3, and you will see there that God speaks of. He speaks of Israel of old, and in verse three, this is what he says is is the reason for the judgments that have fallen. Jeremiah three, verse three. Therefore the showers have been withholden, and there hath been no latter rain and thou hast a whore's for it. Thou refusest to be ashamed. Now in Rome, in the city of Rome, and under Roman law, a prostitute was required by law to identify herself. It wasn't, as it were, a trade she really needed to be ashamed of because of the Low morality in society anyway. So she identified herself by a name on her forehead. And here's what God's saying to Israel of old. Thou hast a horse forehead and, uh, as God says, thou refusest to be a sheep brazen immorality, identifying unashamedly with immorality. That's the woman with her name on her forehead. She's not ashamed that she's departed from God. She's not ashamed that she represents apostasy. She's not ashamed that she's a degrading kings and, and rulers of the earth and leading them into this rebellion against God. She's not ashamed of it. She sits astride that beast with a golden cup, proud of what she's doing, as it were. Now in chapter 19, the one who rides the white horse has a name also. He's not ashamed of his name either. But he doesn't wear it upon his forehead like the woman. His name is on his thigh, which is very different. Now you go back to the book of Genesis. And you remember when Abraham was sending his chief servant, to find a wife for Isaac, what did he require his servant to do? To place his hand upon his thigh and swear to him that he would not get a wife for his son Isaac from the ungodly Canaanites. And he made him swear he put his hand upon his thigh and he swore. He made a covenant with Abraham that he would do as Abraham required. What have we here? He hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is his covenant name. This is his name he has from eternity past engaged in a covenant with God that he would redeem his people, that he would destroy the works of the devil. And here he is in fulfillment of that covenant. He is the Lamb, a symbol of peace. But he is not going to allow the woman and the beast and all the enemies of Christ to destroy his church and to conquer his people. And so he rides forth conquering and to conquer, keeping the terms of the covenant. He has sworn by an everlasting covenant that he will redeem his people. Not one of them will be lost. And so when you see the preparation for the downfall of this great city of Babylon, we are seeing the faithfulness of God. We are seeing his own beloved son engaging the enemy to overcome. And you see what happens, exactly as it happened again and again in the Old Testament you go to Second Chronicles 20. And there you have the people of God and they are encompassed by all the united enemies. Powers have come together. What did the kings say? We know not what to do, but our eyes are upon thee. And the next day they went out singing. And we're told, As they sang, something happened. In the uh, experience of this people, God had said that they were to stand and witness the mighty deliverance that God would give. So they did. They sang. And then what happened? Moab. uh, There was an ambushment against the children of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir which were come against Judah. And they were smitten. The children of Ammon and Moab stood up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir utterly to to slay and to destroy them. Everyone helped to destroy the other. What happens here? They come against the Lamb, against his people. What do they end up doing? Destroying the whole. They turn on their friend, as it were. They destroy her, just as they done in the Old Testament. We shall go into it more deeply later, but my, what a build-up, ready for the destruction and the downfall of the great apostate system that is here depicted In this woman and in this beast. We shall leave it there. May the Lord bless his word. Let us pray. Most holy and eternal God, we rejoice that the one whom we serve rules and reigns and he will overrule even the most vicious and evil intentions of his enemies. To bring about the fulfillment of his purposes we bless thee and praise thee for that glorious person whose name is the word of God we rejoice in the power of that sword that proceedeth out of his mouth to slay the nations and to subdue them do thou then work in our dark day keep our eyes where they ought to be On him that rides upon the white horse, bless us, pardon us, accept us. For Christ's sake, amen.